0: Our Old Testament then comes from Psalm 40. Hear now the word of our God from Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if the tone shift was jarring to anybody as you heard that. We have a, a psalm of praise for God's deliverance that suddenly turns into a lament. Shouldn't the movement go the other direction? Isn't the story from sorrow to joy? Isn't the story from death to resurrection? Isn't this backwards? Shouldn't every song have a happy ending? No. If every psalm had a happy ending, then you'd have nothing to sing when you're in moments of misery and pain. What do you sing? When you're in the middle of a horrible part of the story, what do you sing when you're poor and needy? When the world, the flesh, and the devil are trying to destroy you? Well, in the middle of your pain and affliction, you can sing Psalm 40. Start with the end of the story. I waited for the Lord, and he heard me and rescued me. David puts this in the past tense. Now, maybe he's referring to past deliverance. That's possible. Or maybe he has such confidence in God. He has such confidence in the end of the story. He knows where this story ends that he puts it in the past tense even though it hasn't happened yet. Which one? I'm not sure. And I'm not sure that it matters. Because every past deliverance David had ever had, every past deliverance you have ever experienced, is all rooted in that eschatological deliverance, in that last day's deliverance, in that final deliverance, when Jesus brings us to himself. So what's the difference? Whichever one he's thinking of at the time, it's all connected. As we've seen during this series on book one of the Psalms, this latter part of book one contains some very dark songs, songs that cry out for God to make things right. And the first part of Psalm 40 gives us the answer. The answer is the coming of the Lord Jesus, the one who comes to do God's will. And then it turns to this petition that those who seek to snatch away my life will themselves be put to shame and brought to dishonor. Now, these imprecations, these, you know, calling on God to do things to other people uh, sound odd to us. And it's important that we learn how to sing them the right way as opposed to the wrong way. Uh, Augustine helps us with this. He, he says it's very tempting for us to try to tell God what to do. And he says, do not attempt to coerce God. I mean, you put it that way, you're like, well, of course, who would ever try to do that? But he says, look, if you invoke God as your ally... When you are minded to make merry over someone else's misfortune, oh yeah, when he, when he suffers, then I'll be really happy. Uh, Augustine says no. You are trying to make God collude with your malice. And if you do that, you are not calling on him with praise, but trying to manipulate him. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that one. When we ask God to bring vengeance, when we ask God to make things right, we do not do it out of malice and envy, but out of love. Let me give you a really easy example. When I pray that God will thwart the plans of terrorists and put them to shame, I am doing this because I love terrorists. I hope you love terrorists too. Because what they're doing is so awful that it must be stopped. Love for terrorists demands that they be stopped. I mean, when people do awful things to hurt other people, that's not good. If you love people who are trying to do awful things, then you will stop them from doing those awful things. Because love does not love does not say, oh, please, blow up that tower, that'd be awesome. No, that's not love. Love says this has to stop. So we pray that those who delight in hurting others would be turned back. And it's the old line that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so we ask him to take care of it. We hand vengeance over to him so that we can simply love our neighbors as ourselves. Our New Testament lesson comes from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. I've titled this sermon, A A Song of the Incarnate King, because Hebrews 10 tells us how to sing Psalm 40, because Jesus sang Psalm 40 when he came into the world. We've been seeing throughout this series on the Psalms, book one, that that Israel was being taught how to sing these songs with David, pretty much. Almost all the psalms in Book 1 are psalms of David. They're in the voice of David. David is the first person singular of these songs. And I've been telling you this that is because... Well, that's because that's how the New Testament tells us to do this. Psalm 40 is the song of the Incarnation, the song of the Christ when he came into the world. Now, but if this is a psalm of David, if his voice is the first person singular, and if it, Jesus takes this song into his own voice and says he's the singer... So what does it have to do with us? Well, we need to hear these psalms in the voice of David because of God's promise to David that his son would sit on his throne forever. And as Israel learned to sing these psalms in and with David, so also we need to learn to sing them in and with Jesus. So it means that these songs do apply to us precisely because you have been united to Jesus. If you believe in him, if you have trusted in him, your life has been hidden with him, you are his. And so even as he sang these songs, so now you sing them with him and in him. So in that sense, in that sense it's, a, it's important to see David's voice, Jesus' voice as the singer of the psalm. Because there are certain things that just don't make sense at times if you try to take everything into your own voice. But when you see yourself in him, when you see yourself joined to Jesus, then all of these songs come together in some really beautiful ways. In Psalm 40, we we hear first how to thank God for his past deliverance and then also how to lament and ask God for his future deliverance because the incarnate King is sitting on his throne, because Jesus has come in our flesh Part of what's going on in in book one and also in book two of the Psalter is these are songs that are at the end of book two. It'll talk about how the prayers of David son of Jesse are ended because book three will go on to talk about the exile. Books one and two are songs of the kingdom. And earlier in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us that we don't yet see everything under Jesus feet. And I think we would all agree on that. Is everything everything on planet Earth going going the way Jesus wants it to go? Is everybody obeying Jesus and everything? The kingdom of God has come and everything is hunky-dory now. Okay, obviously not. We don't yet see everything under Jesus' feet. But we see him. We see Jesus. And that's part of what the Psalms are teaching us. This is, the, this is the world that David and his sons lived in. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is here. And yet things are not the way they should be. And that's why David starts in the first person singular. As the king, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. It's hard to wait. Y'all know the line, don't pray for patience. God, God might give it to you. Brothers and sisters, that's a terrible argument. Pray for patience. Because if you don't pray for patience, he'll have to give it to you anyway. And that'll be harder because you're not tuning yourself in to God's purposes and plans for you. So yes, pray for patience because then you'll be ready for the lessons in patience that he wants to teach you. But it's hard. It's hard to wait patiently when you're in the midst of suffering. The picture here is is of an old man who has suffered for many years alone, enduring the miseries of life, the picture in Psalm 40 is of a, a faithful Christian in Iraq or Syria or Egypt who has lived her whole life under the fear of oppression and persecution and now it's a hundred times worse. The picture in Psalm 40 is ultimately of the Christ who endured the cross, patiently trusting that God would raise him from the dead. After all, the what's the rescue that, that verse 2 talks about? He drew me up from the pit of destruction. it's a a good translation literally it reads the pit of noise it's just noise what does that mean? actually it's it's, the image here is is the the noise of of the abyss the the cosmic sea the, the, the mighty waters the chaotic depths we're not talking about just oh some little ordinary hole in the ground no we're talking about this chaotic place of destruction one early commentator on this psalm put it this way just as Mud in a in a lake is is foul smelling and oppressive, so the the sins of people are slimy, for they smell foul and drown us with their weight. It's a good way of putting it. Our sins are slimy, like a miry bog. But just as we were sinking in the slough of despond, our Lord Jesus drew us up and set our feet on a rock. And he did this because he himself was the one who first descended into the pit. He's the voice saying, he drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet on the rock. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus says it to you so that you can now say it in and with him. He was the one who willingly entered this miry bog, trusting that his father would rescue him. And so Jesus sings this song to us and calls us to sing it with him. And notice that it says that he put a new song in my mouth. Verse 3, a song of praise to our God. Now notice where this new song comes from. The song is not from my heart. The song is not my gift to God. The song is God's gift to us. The new song is the, the spirit-driven message that the Lord has given to his people. Jesus has sung the new song, the victory song, the song of triumph, Therefore, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear God, then you are not wise. When, oftentimes nowadays, people will will start talking about God as sort of like as their buddy, and there's no real fear of God in the way they talk about Him. Contrast that with what. The Apostle John did when he saw Jesus in the book of Revelation, the exalted Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father. The Apostle John, remember, the Apostle John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's the three disciples who were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. But then there's the one disciple who gets the, 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 the title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So this would be Jesus' closest friend on earth. So the person, the person in all of human history who was ever closest to Jesus, what does he do when he sees the exalted, ascended, risen Christ? He falls on his face as one dead. If you do not fear the Lord, Jesus, then you are claiming to be greater than the apostles. The fear of the Lord is clean, Psalm 19 taught us. The fear of the Lord is good. It is the beginning of wisdom. It recognizes, oh, right, what Jesus thinks of me is more important than with what anybody else thinks of me, anything else that might happen to me. What do I fear? I fear him. Yes, perfect love casts out fear. But remember who wrote those words? The Apostle John, who fell at Jesus' feet as one dead. The perfect love that casts out fear is the perfect. The perfect love is, it simply describes this is where the fear of the Lord leads you. The fear of the Lord leads you to that perfect love that casts out fear. It's all woven together. And in verses four and five, David tells us, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Now, The proud in verse 4 is the word Rahav, uh, which is actually one of the words used to refer to the sea monsters in Canaanite mythology. A few weeks ago when we were in Psalm 29, we saw how the Lord is the true God of thunder, not Baal. The Psalms frequently engage with Canaanite culture around them, repudiating the idolatry of Canaan. And that's exactly what's happening here in Psalm 40. Verse 4 is contrasting those who trust Yahweh, those who trust the Lord, with those who turn to the Rahavim, the sea monster gods of Canaan, those who go astray after a lie, after idols. Now, why would I bring up sea monster gods of Canaan? Why Why do we care? Well, the sea monster gods of the Canaanites are still among us. They have different names now, but we still talk about them. So the sea monster gods of Canaan were invoked to explain natural phenomena, storms, winds, various troubles. Now, the modern world has simply replaced the sea monster gods with science and economics. But it's the same principles. Capitalism puts its trust in the invisible hand of the free market, guided by the priestly class of economists. Socialism puts its trust in the wise benevolence of the all-powerful state. And what is the result? We don't fear God. We fear the markets. We don't trust God. We trust the scientists who will fix things for us. We have turned to lies. We have turned to the sea monster gods of the ancient world, the, the invisible forces that guide our world manipulated by the economist priests and the scientist priests of our modern religion. Now, I'm not saying that science and economics are bad ideas, don't study them. I'm just saying... That's not our trust. That's not our hope. We should not be fearing any of those things. We should remember that God is still God and we still are not. Now, there's a lot of temptation then to conform the church to the world. And much of modern Christianity has turned worship into entertainment and imitated consumer culture in the way we frame our worship. Now, that's where the the historic Christian liturgy did not do this. They didn't actually borrow their, their liturgical forms from the culture. They followed the pattern set forth in the, in the scriptures. And we see this in the, in the pattern that, that churches follow all th- throughout the centuries. Entering worship through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, hearing the word of God, responding with prayer and praise, partaking of the covenant meal. Every biblical worship service was designed to draw worshipers into the presence of God by reciting the mighty deeds of God and celebrating his saving acts. It's precisely what Psalm 40, indeed what all of the psalms are part of, because these are the, this is the songbook for the worship of God, for the people of God. And the only alternative to this is idolatry, turning to the proud, turning to the sea monster gods of our day. Now, one thing I should make clear is I'm not talking about music style. There are lots of great churches that use contemporary music style, traditional music style, various other music styles. Music style isn't the point at all. The problem is when we treat the worship service as a consumer product. That's where we get in trouble. The proper focus of worship is on God's mighty deeds in history. And you hear David reflect upon this in in verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. In Christ, we celebrate God's mighty deeds throughout history. David would be referring back to the Exodus and the conquest and God's wondrous deeds and thoughts toward his people. And therefore, David says, I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. No matter how much we we continue to proclaim his mighty deeds, there's more than we can ever say. And so we come to the, the verses that Hebrews quotes in Hebrews 10. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Now, the psalms are being used in the temple worship. The king is singing this song in the temple as a part of the sacrificial liturgy. His point is not that God is against sacrifice and offering. The point is that what God delights in is not the offering per se. What God delights in is the king who delights to do his will. And what God delights in is... This is where David recognizes that all of these sacrifices and offerings, they're never going to actually solve the problem. It's David gets exactly what Hebrews will say in Hebrews 10. The blood of bulls and goats can't actually remove sin. What God delights in is not that. But what, what God delights in, and this is where David, where David puts it, is you have given me an open ear. You have dug an ear for me which which Hebrews will, will take as that you have prepared a body for me. Because what Hebrews is, Hebrews is seeing precisely what David's getting at and saying, right, it's the incarnation of the word. Yes, David was hearing God's will and seeking to do it, but we needed a David. We needed a son of David who would be one who would hear God's will, do it, and triumph through his own sacrifice to bring life to the dead. The point is that God delights in those who delight to do His will. There were many in the ancient world who thought that the gods delighted in offerings. If you just go through the outward rituals, then the gods will be pleased with you. They would say, Your heart doesn't matter. Just go do, do the things, and the gods will, 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 will be with you. Now, we, we, we live in a culture that sort of reversed all this. Your heart is all that matters. A person can be wicked and despicable, but people will still say, oh, but his heart's in the right place. Well, Psalm 40 rejects both the the formalism of the ritualist and the touchy-feelyism of the postmodernist. Yes, there is a biblical pattern for worship, but just going through the motions? No, that's not what God wants. God delights in his Son, the King. This is where the incarnation is at the heart of Psalm 40. It's at the heart of the whole of the Christian church. It's the heart of the gospel. The gospel is that God came in our flesh, that in His Son, He has joined Himself to our humanity, that through His death and resurrection, He might join us to the life of God. And so David says, "I Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. Now, it's, many have thought this refers to, to the law, the, the Pentateuch, the basic scripture of, of his day. But there's another connection that many have seen. Verse 4 had just said, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Where does the Psalms, this altar open? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly for his delight is in the law of the Lord. The blessed man of Psalm 40 is the blessed man of Psalm 1. As we come to the end of Book 1 of the Psalms, we shouldn't be surprised that we come back to the beginning. Psalm 1 is echoed throughout Psalm 40 because God has not only inspired each psalm, he has also inspired the book of Psalms. And so here, Psalm 40 is referring back to the beginning of the book. In order to put into the mouth of David, I am the blessed man. I am the blessed man of Psalm 1. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm 1 had said, the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. And Deuteronomy 30 had said, the law has been, is in your heart. What does God delight in? God does not delight in offering and sacrifice, just going through the motions of religious observance. God delights in people who delight to do his will, people who have his law within their hearts. God delights in those who do the right things for the right reasons. And so, yes, in one sense, if your heart is in the right place, then you will do the right thing and this is especially important because this is the king speaking. For all of you who are thinking to yourself, yeah, but I only kind of delight to kind of do the we have occasionally, maybe, sometimes. Remember, this is now the voice of Jesus. You say this with him and in him, yes, but only in him and with him. If you try to say it by yourself, it's not true. By myself, is it true that I delight to do God's will? If the answer to that is sometimes, then that means the answer is no. <laughs> In myself, I fall short. Only Jesus can say this wholly and truly and fully. And that's why Hebrews tells us that Christ said this when he came into the world. Because when Christ came into the world, he came as the one who would finally accomplish what God had promised to David In Jesus, there is finally a son of David who will succeed where Israel failed, who will succeed where the house of David failed, who will succeed, indeed, where Adam had failed. And in doing so, he becomes the once-for-all sacrifice with which God would be pleased. Hebrews 10 almost reverses the point of Psalm 40. In Psalm 40, the point was that sacrifice by itself cannot please God. So you need to obey Him. In Hebrews 10... We finally have the one who actually succeeded at obeying God, thereby rendering him capable of offering a sacrifice which can satisfy divine justice. All the Old Testament sacrifices were not pleasing to God. Why do we know this? Because they didn't work. They had to be offered over and 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 over. And if I kept going, I couldn't stop because they'll never stop in that. Okay, we got a problem here. They never fully, finally dealt with sin. How can sin be finally dealt with? Only if there is a man, one who shares our nature, who is a, offers himself as the atoning sacrifice. Well, the problem is, what man could possibly do that? Only one who is also God. Because only if one who has the power of a divine life offers himself as a sacrifice, can he overcome death. Otherwise, death wins. Because as we all know, death always wins. Nobody's escaped that one. But one has triumphed over it. Our Lord Jesus, who rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Because when the Christ came into the world, the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father delighted in his Son and accepted his offering of himself once for all. And so Christ says, I delight to do your will. Ambrose said this beautifully in the fourth century, For my sake, he took on himself the combat so that he might conquer me. Though Christ's flesh was strong and not liable to sin, he nevertheless took on my sins. He took on my weakness and my infirmities, though he himself was without infirmity. He who is all pure took on our flesh to make it all pure. He, the immortal one, took on our flesh. To make us immortal. And so the king declares the glad news of salvation. And he speaks of the great congregation, which would refer to the people of Israel, gathered for a feast. Jesus declares the glad news of salvation to you, as we gather before him this day, as we are gathered at the feast. And what is the point of this declaration? David says, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. God's salvation is not just for the king. God's faithfulness, His salvation are for all of His people. They're for you. All those who trust in Him may now come and pour out our hearts to God. Now, how does this psalm then speak to us in our situation? Because, God does not promise that in your lifetime you will see great and wondrous deeds. You may only see small and ordinary deeds. Think of the saints who have lived in Muslim lands for the last thousand years. They haven't seen much in the way of great and awesome deeds. They have watched as a place that once sent forth the gospel to the rest of the earth falls under a barren darkness that destroys everything. But God is faithful. Even in the midst of evils beyond number, God's steadfast love endures. And that's why the lament connects to the promise. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. It may may, may seem strange for Jesus to say this next line, my iniquities have overtaken me. How can Jesus say that? He who knew no sin became sin for us. Not that he sinned, but that he took our sin, our iniquity upon himself. Not only did he endure the miseries of this life, but on the cross, he became sin. And so he could say with David, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. And so when you feel that evils have encompassed you beyond number, that iniquity has overtaken you so that your heart fails, remember that your Lord Jesus came in the flesh for this very reason. The only way to glory is the way of the cross. Left to myself, I am ruined. And so I cry out, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Now, uh, the last five verses of Psalm 40 were apparently so popular in ancient Israel that when it came time to put together book two of the Psalms, they took the last five verses from Psalm 40 and put it into a standalone psalm called Psalm 70. And one of the Desert Fathers rightly said that Psalm 70 is the universal Christian prayer because in every situation in life you can sing, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. And here in Psalm 40, though, we have been given the backdrop to remember God's mighty deeds. And particularly, we have this theme of delight that returns. God does not delight in offering and sacrifice. Rather, He delights in one who delights to do His will. The problem is, there are those who delight in my hurt, verse 14. And so, because I delight to do God's will... I ask God to turn them back and bring them to dishonor because I love God and I love my neighbor. And so David then calls us, may all who seek the Lord, may all who seek you, rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Jesus prays that all who seek him will rejoice and be glad. It's what Jesus asks for you and for me that we would celebrate the Lord's great salvation. And then he speaks of himself again. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh God. Augustine wisely says, There is nothing of my own in me that deserves praise. May he tear off my sackcloth and clothe me in his own robe. For it is not I who live now, but Christ lives in me. If Christ lives in you and all the good you have belongs to Christ and all the good you ever will have belongs to Christ, what are you in and of yourself? I am poor and needy. It is because we are poor and needy that we cry out, You are my help and my deliverer. God is our help. Remember, that, that, that doesn't mean God is my assistant who does the things that I don't really care to do. The helper in Scripture is never portrayed that way. The helper in Scripture is always one who does for you what you could not possibly do for yourself. When Eve is called Adam's help, it's because Adam has been told to be fruitful and multiply. Good luck with that she will do for him what he could not possibly do for himself. The helper is always one who does for you what you could not possibly do for yourself. If God does not help, where are we? We're still stuck in the pit and we'll be there forever. Forever. But Jesus became all that we are by nature so that we might become all that he is by grace. God joined himself to our humanity that he might join us to his divinity. He has helped us. And so when you are distressed, when you are afflicted, cry out to him. The Lord takes thought for you. He is the help and the deliverer of all who call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, we call upon your name because we have no help apart from you. You are the one who, have, who has rescued us from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. You have set our feet upon the rock, your Son, our Lord Jesus. You have put a new song in our mouths, a song of praise to our God. Help us, Lord, to to believe your promises, to trust that you will continue your work in us until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.